I have nothing against Baptists. I just believe they were not held under long enough. Howdy! You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Every week we try and bring you a new and fascinating story in Texas history and culture. But what you may not realize is sometimes we run across stories that can't quite make it into a full episode. Today we thought we'd bring you some interesting stories that we wanted to talk about in the past as a kind of potpourri of odds and ends. Here are three short tales of Texas history. But first, what's your favorite Texas County Courthouse? Well, I don't know that I have a favorite, but uh, there's really only one that I've spent any time in, and that was the Collin County Courthouse um, that was originally built in 1979. Um, I spent a day there being uh, eventually not selected for jury duty, so um, that's my the extent of my experience with courthouses in the state of Texas. Well, I've, I've been to a number of courthouses, but mostly... I really love the architecture of seeing some of these older courthouses, and one of them is in Parker County in Weatherford, which is west of Fort Worth, and their courthouse was built in 1886. It's a really beautiful uh, four-corner uh, Victorian style with a center clock tower. Um, the the thing that I, this, it just sticks out in my memory is, as you take 180 uh, west of Fort Worth going towards Mineral Wells, where my grandparents lived, when you come back from visiting Fort Worth, or go to Fort Worth, you had to drive around this traffic circle that went around this courthouse. And so many, many trips around this uh, around this courthouse, seeing the lawn and the, the statues in front of it. So just fond memories of, of a, it's a very beautiful stately courthouse. Well, I am going to give a throwback to uh, Nueces County, which uh, we lived across the bay in Portland, which is part of San Patricio. But uh, you know, Nueces County has a really interesting courthouse. They had a beautiful courthouse that was built in 1914, that kind of neoclassical style. It's just a really gorgeous building right there on the, you know, looking over the bay. And uh, of course, as all bad things happened in the 1970s, they decided to close it down and build a new, bigger, better 1970s style courthouse. And uh, it's a it looks like a weird hospital like Quincy would work in or something. It's just strange. It, it, uh, it has very 70s architecture, and it really sticks out. And you're just like, ah, uh, well, C-minus yeah. <laughs> C, C 1970s for architecture. Um, hey, I want to give a shout-out, too, uh, to the fellow who runs 254, or who runs 254texascourthouses.net. Uh, he has been on a personal quest to document each and every Texas courthouse. And there are some very gorgeous ones. If you're into build buildings and architecture and these neat stories, go check out his site. On past episodes, we've talked about the early days of flight in Texas. And we talked about one of the greatest unknown pioneers of flight, Bessie Coleman. But the first story today involves another legendary flyer in the early days of aviation, one Charles Lindbergh. Now, before he took his famous solo flight across the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis, Lucky Lindy had a run of extremely bad luck in the Lone Star State. In early 1924, as a young barnstorming pilot, he applied to advance flight school in the U.S. Army Air Corps training facility at Brooksfield in San Antonio. 
As Lindbergh waited for his start date, his friend, St. Louis car dealer Leon Klink, convinced him to tour through the Gulf states in an old Curtis Jenny biplane that Klink owned and to teach Klink how to fly along the way. Klink would drop Lindbergh off in Texas and return home with his airplane as a solo pilot. Lindbergh agreed, and together the two flew from Kentucky to Tennessee and then to Florida, and then they decided to head to California before coming back to Texas. As they were flying over Louisiana and into Texas, Lindbergh misread his map and mistook a railroad along the Nueces River for another one that went up the Rio Grande. When the railroad he was following ran out of tracks, the pair were good and lost and ran out of fuel. They landed in a plowed field near the town of Kerrville, west of San Antonio. The next day, after hitching into town to buy gasoline, they discovered the field they landed in wasn't long enough for them to take off. Clink decided to take their luggage, the toolbox, the passenger seat, and himself to the nearest town, Camp Wood, where Lindy would take off and fly to meet him. Lindbergh was able to take off, and he decided to land on the town's main street, Uvalde Road. Utility poles lined the sides of the street, 46 feet apart. Lindbergh's plane had a 43-foot wingspan, so he figured he'd have room to spare when he landed. Lindy was confident he'd be fine with the takeoff as well, but right there in front of all the assembled townspeople who'd never seen such a spectacle with an airplane, Lindy hit a rut in the road and unfortunately clipped a telephone pole veering into a nearby hardware store. No one was injured, but the Ginny was grounded, and the parts they needed to fix the plane had to be ordered from Houston. They stayed at a local hotel in Camp Wood for a few weeks until all the parts arrived. After they fixed the plane, they gave airplane rides to townspeople for $5 a person to cover their cost, and then headed out again. Eventually, Lindbergh arrived in San Antonio, where he graduated the following March at the top of his class. The locals of Camp Wood, Texas, probably chuckled at the slick car salesman and the skinny young kid who everyone called Slim careening into Warren Pruitt's hardware store, but it would give them a surprising and cherished memory three years later when he became the most famous person in the world. Now, if you know this show, you know that we are big fans of classic Texas blood feuds. Big fans. Love them. Love them. <laughs> but one of the more unusual feuds in Texas history actually began in the pages of a Waco newspaper, and it wasn't between families or rival factions or outlaws or lawmen. It was between a newspaper publisher and a Baptist university. William Cowper Brand was the son of an Illinois Presbyterian minister who'd run away from home as a teenager and was a self-educated newspaper reporter and printer. Arriving in Texas in 1890 with a reputation as a brilliant and vitriolic editorialist, Brand worked at papers in Galveston, Austin, and Houston before founding his own paper, The Iconoclast, in Austin. The initial run of this paper, which he called his, quote, Journal of Personal Protest, failed, and he sold the paper to his friend, writer O. Henry. In 1894, Brand moved to Waco and bought the Iconoclast back from O. Henry, where this time it was more successful. Soon the Iconoclast had a circulation of 100,000, with subscribers as far away as Hawaii, Canada, and England. What made the paper different was the wit, wisdom, and absolute venom dripping from the pen of its publisher, especially when he turned his sights upon the biggest institution in the central Texas town, the bastion of morality that was Baylor University. Baylor was, and is to this day, a private Southern Baptist university. It was chartered in 1845 by the Republic of Texas and is the oldest continuingly operating institute of higher learning in the state. 
The university is named after its founder, prominent judge, soldier, politician, and Baptist minister R.E.B. Baylor. The university had moved to Waco in 1885, where it would be a major railroad junction that crossed the Brazos River. It also became a co-educational facility, and by the early 1890s was considered the crown jewel of the nation's Baptist universities. However, in 1895, a scandal hit the university, and Bran, never a fan of Baptists, religious conservatives, or anyone he considered to be self-righteous, besides himself, of course, was right at the forefront of the mudslinging. In 1895, a 14-year-old female student from Brazil was working as a housekeeper for the university's president, Rufus C. Burleson. She became pregnant and accused a boarder at the house, one Steen Morris, of being the father. Bran ran with the story, decrying it as, quote, a brutish crime against the chastity of childhood. He claimed that Steen was the brother of Burleson's son-in-law and that Burleson knew about the incident and tried to cover it up, thus making him complicit. Brand also claimed that Baylor officials were importing South American children recruited by missionaries and making house servants out of them. Both Steen and Burleson were acquitted by a grand jury, but that didn't stop Brand. Brand revved up his vitriol and made attacking the university a personal crusade, calling it, quote, that great storm center of misinformation. He wrote, Change is the order of the day, and as Baylor cannot very well become worse, it must, of necessity, become better. His supporters called him the Prairie Voltaire, and his opponents called him the Devil's Disciple. He wasn't so much anti-religious as he was anti-hypocrite, as he would see it, but he certainly hated the Baptists, saying, I have nothing against Baptists. I just believe they were not held under long enough. That's pretty bad. Unfor- That's pretty, pretty low. <laughs> <But he> did- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, he also was a virulent racist and was even more vicious in denouncing blacks than he was Baptists. After a while, he just got mean. In October 1897, as Burleson was getting ready to retire, Bran attacked the candidates to replace him, accusing them of blatant jackassery. <laughs> this was the <laughs> last straw in many people's eyes. A mob of several hundred students swarmed Brand's house in the night and kidnapped him, intending to tar and feather the man. They were unable to do so when one of his supporters hid the tar and feathers. I guess there wasn't any more tar and feathers in all of Waco. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the tar and feather store is closed on Sundays and Mondays. Uh, uh, And then he was saved from hanging by the intervention of several Baylor professors. He signed a promise to retract his statements and leave town. Of course, he failed to do either, and four nights later, a Baptist judge and two others tied him up and then soundly beat him. That still wasn't enough to get Brand to stop his attacks. He took the, quote, Baylor bullies to task for their actions. He later offered to teach a night school class for Baylor faculty, free of charge, just asking that his students, quote, give bond not to seek a better paying situation as soon as he learns something. A month later, there was a gunfight between one of his supporters, a county judge, and two of his opponents, the pro-Baylor editor of the Waco Tribune and his brother. The Baylorites were killed, and the judge lost an arm. Wow. Bran wrote his most vicious attack yet. He accused university professors of having sexual relations with female students and said that any father who sent his daughter to the school was risking her defilement. He said that he considered Baylor to be a factory for the manufacture of ministers and Magdalenes, meaning if you sent your daughter to Baylor, you were making her a whore. 
The threats piled it, as he said, as thick as bluebonnets in the meadows. One man who'd issued a threat was Tom Davis, a Waco businessman who resented that Bran had implied his daughter, a Baylor student, was a prostitute. He'd encountered Bran on Austin Avenue on April 1st, 1898, and shot him in the back, right where his suspenders crossed. Bran turned around and returned fire, killing Davis. Bran had been shot through the lung, and he died the next morning of his wounds. He was buried in Waco, and the funeral was attended by hundreds of spectators lining the street. An obelisk was erected over his grave, bearing a marble profile of Bran and the word truth. Showing that feelings die hard in Texas, an unknown gunman later shot a bullet in the side of Bran's carved face. What goes into naming a town? There's plenty of unusually named towns in Texas, and in many cases, the truth behind the name of the town is lost to history. No trees, cut and shoot, gun barrel city, old dime box, new dime box, bug tussle, all of these are unusual names with a story. But what happens when the big part of the story is not true? The tiny community of Spanish Fort, located about a mile south of the Red River northwest of Dallas, has a fascinating history, but there's just one problem. There was no Spanish fort there. The origins of the town stretched all the way back to the early 1700s when French traders built a fort at a Teovaya Indian village on the Red River. The Teovaya were a band of Wichita people who just moved to Texas from Kansas and had a long-time trading partnership with the French. The French followed the Teovaya to Texas and helped them fortify the town. Only a few traders lived there, but the post thrived for several decades. Eventually, it was bound to attract Spanish interest, since technically the land was claimed by Spain. In 1759, Colonel Diego Ortiz Paria led an expedition to retaliate against Comanche and Wichita raiders who destroyed the Mission San Saba the year before. His force of several hundred soldiers found the fortified village protected by 6,000 Teovians, Wichita, Comanche, and French traders. Bonjour! <laughs> Flying overhead was the French flag. After a four-hour battle, the Spanish retreated, even leaving their baggage train and two cannon. Eventually, the Spanish made peace with the Indians, but a visit in 1778 by Spanish official Athenes de Mizieres persuaded the Teovayas to eventually surrender the two cannon. In the late 1700s, smallpox and encroachment by American settlers decimated the population. And by 1841, the Teovayas had left their fortification to crumble. An early white settler reported visiting the ruins in 1859, but since the Teovayas had long ago departed, he had no idea of its history. He found Spanish artifacts in the ruins and assumed that it had been an old Spanish fort. Eventually, the town was founded nearby, and in the late 1870s, when the residents wished to incorporate and get a post office, they found the original name they had picked was already being used by another town in Texas. Two older locals suggested Spanish Fort for the ruins nearby, and the name stuck. Today, there's only about 50 people who live in the community, and the only remnant of the Teovaya French-Spanish Fort is a stone marker placed there during the Texas Centennial. It at least tells the story of Spanish Fort, though. The true story. Well, the truth is stranger than fiction, I guess. Yeah. And and. Yeah, in this case, it's actually more interesting. Like a Spanish fort makes sense, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's a little far north for Spanish settlement, but maybe there was a fort up there that the Spaniards had. But the idea of a French Indian trading post that that managed to hold on for, you know, 
quite a while, even after the French had long gone from North America, is 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 pretty fascinating. Well, that is neat. I mean, that's one of those things of, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people that drive past it or see it on a map or think, you just don't think about it. Yeah. You assume, you you assume, and that never works out good. And, and it, you know, well, our first episode was about the French in Texas. And yeah. We didn't even t- we didn't know this story. Like this, is another example of the French flag yeah. over Texas. There you go. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, and it's it is it is one of those that it was a that was the one of the inaugural great questions of why is there a French flag over Texas? <laughs> but it's it's these. There's all these great little stories of of uh, where the French really had to, had a place and and made a place in Texas. So yeah. cool. I, I didn't yeah. know that about Spanish Fort. So how about that scale uh scandal in Baylor, huh? <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> that brand um man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I I the guy's got moxie. Like I mean to go after <laughs> like today if you wrote like hateful things about Baylor, you'd be like, yeah. but this guy in in that day and age, that yeah. Well, I mean, he definitely That's when a newspaper man was really something. In today's world, he'd be the guy with the blog or the the talk radio show or the or the podcast, you know, that just gets out there and and says what he's going to say, right? Um, he he was a real interesting guy. I actually did, I'd never heard of him, and I saw this story in a in a magazine, and so I did did a little more research. I found a website that has some of his writings, and 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 he he is he's a brilliant writer. Uh, unfortunately, he's he's pretty mean towards the Baptists, but boy. He, the stuff he writes about the 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 black uh, the black race and I mean he he literally said it would be better if the South went out and killed them all took a day to kill all the blacks in the South and it would solve all the problems of the country like wow yeah like holy cow really yeah but <laughs> yeah but that Baptist line was pretty clever yeah the Baptist yeah it it, it kind of puts into context like. You know, some of the scandals about Baylor and their athletic programs and stuff like that is kind of pales in comparison when the university president is accused of harboring a person who defiled a teenage girl from South America. Yeah. I I had heard that before, though. I just maybe didn't know who said it. Oh, so. about the Baptists? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't go, oh, agree with it, friend. but it's something I had heard before. <laughs> well, and so. it's an interesting it's an interesting case of you know the the pen actually it, you know, the pen and it was used as a sword in this case, uh, and he, yeah, he stirred but swords such, are no good against bullets. Yeah, but he stirred such anger. But he also was like the town was divided. He there was people that agreed with him and. You know, he was very popular with a lot of people. The The story that I read about his funeral was no one is quite sure who was of the hundreds and maybe even thousands of people lining the streets for the funeral, who was there, who was there to to mourn him and who was there to cheer that he was gone. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, there you go, Bran. And, uh, you know, if you're in uh, Waco and stop by the old graveyard, yeah. take a look at yeah. that. <laughs> Obelisk. Yeah, it'd be nice to have somebody put an obelisk on your grave, by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I really do like the uh, the Charles Lindbergh story though, because uh-huh. because like you said, it's like okay, here's this soon to be incredibly famous person that's doing all this crazy stuff, landing his plane in the middle of nowhere and landing it in the city street, and you know, it, it's pretty cool. 
Yeah, except that when it's like, yeah, if he figured two to three feet would be plenty of clearance. <laughs> and it's like the ultimate confidence, right? Even, yeah, even the greatest pilot is kind of dumb. Well, yeah, and this is only, you know, this is only what, 19 years after the after the the Wright brothers first flew. So all this sci this is not exactly science. This was more like Moxie. Yeah. You know, we're we're gonna read a map and follow along a river and a railroad track and that's gonna get us to California. Uh, yeah. 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 So there's no landing mistake field. Mid- yeah. <laughs> mistaking the Nueces for the Rio Grande, that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's too. a that's a that's a LaSalle level mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <I> agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, gosh, I mean, it's one of these funny things looking at these little stories to just touch on on the history and culture. It's just, just it's a, it's a good throwback to think about that. It's a, you know, we're 124 episodes into this, and there's still an interesting tale under every rock you kick over in Texas. Well, and and point of fact, I have some more for next week's episode that we'll talk about. A few more little stories, Yay. small stories that. That are of interest, tales of interest. <laughs> oh. Well, if you love interesting tales, come back next week. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to throw out a challenge to the listeners. If you have an interesting small story about Texas that you know you thought you think maybe it's not enough to make an episode, let us know, and maybe we can we can make it a part of an episode or an interesting story to share with you as the listeners. With the rest of the listeners who maybe don't know, like maybe you got an uncle who uh, who saw this uh, Lindbergh, a great uncle who's probably dead now, but you had an uncle that saw the Lindbergh landing in Camp Wood, or maybe you've got a grandfather that um, that uh, was there when uh, LBJ was just a state representative in Texas and Austin, and has some interesting LBJ stories. Well, there you I'd go. Like the gauntlet has been thrown. Yeah. For the new year. So it's a new year, folks. So get out there and uh, let us know. How can you get in touch with us? Well, let me tell you. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We love to hear from you. So get out there, like us, share us on Facebook, or follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Go to brainstable.com and you can leave us some feedback directly. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like this show, and you know you do, and you like Texas, and you know you do, tell your friends, tell everyone you know, to please leave a review on iTunes and listen to this show, because that really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>